Climate Law Matters. Interview with Stephen Troman's KC, part three. Hello, listener. Welcome back to our podcast, Climate Law Matters. My name is Steph David, and I'm a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers. And I'm Stephen Troman's King's Counsel, also a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers. Otherwise known as Mr. Environment. Well, I have been around in the field for some time. Some might say maybe too long. In our previous two episodes, Stephen kindly shared his thoughts on the net zero growth plan, how we suggest practitioners should go about formulating grounds of challenge in public interest judicial reviews and the role of the Paris Agreement in this litigation. Today, we're going to focus on a few key principles that can be used to inform these challenges. First, Stephen, how useful do you think the principle of sustainable development is as a tool? It's one of those areas which, on its face, might seem to be very relevant and very useful as a tool for lawyers. And obviously, it's got great prominence in policy. But I think the reality, as we may see, is a bit different Back in 1990, when I was first seriously getting into environmental law, the principle of sustainable development seemed very exciting. And for those who can remember it, was the cornerstone of Mrs Thatcher's landmark white paper, This Common Inheritance of 1990. It was one of the principles that I discussed back then, along with the polluter pays principle and the precautionary principle, in an article that I wrote, which was called High Talk and Low Cunning, The Role of Principles in Environmental Law. By the title, I meant that while politicians might like talking the high talk about such principles, in reality, a great deal of ingenuity was going to be deployed to try and avoid being constrained by those principles. And I think so it's probably proven. Anyway, to return to sustainable development, the principle still now features heavily in the relevant statutory regimes, as well as in national policy. For example, the Section 13 obligation set out in the Climate Change Act of 2008 specifically mandates that proposals and principles taken as a whole must be such as to contribute to sustainable development, Section 13, subsection 3. And similarly, by Section 58, the Secretary of State's objectives, proposals and policies in relation to the adaptation to climate change must also contribute to sustainable development. And yet, the term is not defined within the 2008 Act itself. We do find it's referred to in other contexts. For example, Section 10 of the Planning Act 2008 requires that the Secretary of State must have regard to the objective of sustainable development when exercising certain functions. And that includes having particular regard to the, quote, desirability of mitigating and adapting to climate change. So you might think that it's a promising principle. Indeed, and building on that, of course, in the Environment Act 2021, the Secretary of State is required to prepare a policy statement on environmental principles. And that statement is required to explain how the environmental principles should be interpreted and proportionately implied by ministers of the Crown when making policy. By section 17, subsection 4, the Secretary of State must be satisfied the statement will contribute, among other things, to sustainable development. And looking at the statement itself, 
when considering sustainable development, the statement refers to and adopts the definition of sustainable development set out in the UN's sustainable development goals. Yes, that's exactly right. But the question must be the extent to which sustainable development, when it's properly defined, can actually assist in achieving climate change goals. If we go back to the Heathrow case, which we touched on in previous podcasts, the Supreme Court referred to the definition of sustainable development set out in the National Planning Policy Framework. And at paragraph 115 of its judgment said this, for a major infrastructure project like the development of air capacity, which promotes economic development as at the cost of increased greenhouse gas emissions, these elements have to be taken into account, and these are the important words, and balanced against each other. And they noted that section 10 of the Planning Act provides the Secretary of State in particular have regard to the desirability of mitigating and adapting to climate change. Similarly, if you turn to the National Planning Policy Framework, the three overarching objectives which comprise sustainable development are set out there, economic, social and environmental. Paragraph 8. There's a presumption in favour of sustainable development in the context of plan-making that includes mitigation of climate change, which includes by making effective use of land in urban areas. Again, all well and good. But the difficulty with it is that it's the balancing of the competing interests, environmental, economic and social, which falls squarely into the domain of policymaking. And that was one of the main points that I made in the 1990 article I referred to earlier, and it remains the case, I think. So in my view, except where a specific national or local plan policy is engaged, which expressly refers to sustainable development, which has to be construed as a matter of law, cases are probably not going to succeed or fall on that principle itself. Building on that, what do you think about the precautionary principle in assisting and strengthening a case? Yes, the precautionary principle is perhaps, you might say, a different kettle of fish to sustainable development. It's much hard-edged, I would say. It's a fundamental principle of EU environmental law, and indeed it's enshrined in Article 191 of the European Treaty. And it requires that a precautionary approach be taken where there is objective scientific uncertainty. And indeed, the Environment Act 2021 also enshrines the principle as an environmental principle, and it does so by reference to the 1992 Rio Declaration, that the statement made under the Act specifically advises policymakers to firstly identify the risk of serious or irreversible environmental harm, and secondly manage the risk of serious or irreversible harm. In the context of climate change specifically, I would say the principle is perhaps most commonly seen deployed in relation to non-CO2 emissions from aviation, as in the Heathrow case. In that case, there was agreement between the parties that there is continuing uncertainty in the scientific community about the effects of non-CO2 emissions, unlike CO2 emissions, where there's plainly a great deal of consensus. The Court of Appeal decision in Heathrow was, I think, something of a high point for the precautionary principle, but it was a bit of a short-lived high point. 
if we recall, the Court of Appeal had upheld the challenge by Friends of the Earth, which stated that the precautionary principle and common sense suggested that scientific uncertainty wasn't a reason for not taking something into account at all, even if it couldn't be precisely quantified at that stage, Power 258 of the Court of Appeal's judgment. The Court of Appeal didn't say in terms that the Secretary of State had acted irrationally in this respect, but given that it was remitting the national policy statement back to the Secretary of State to be reconsidered, the Court said at paragraph 164 of the Supreme Court judgment that the question of non-CO2 emissions and the effect of post-2050 emissions would need to be taken into account as part of that exercise. So that's where they got to court appeal. However, the Supreme Court disagreed with that approach and determined, para 165, that the precautionary principle actually adds nothing in this context to the argument. The court's view on irrationality wasn't the same as the common sense view of irrationality. We discussed that last time, which is the only basis on which the Friends of the Earth sought to challenge the designation. And so the Supreme Court, paragraph 166, concluded along the following lines. First of all, they agreed with what the divisional court had said, that it was not reasonably arguable that the Secretary of State had acted irrationally in not addressing the effect of non-CO2 emissions for six reasons, insofar as these are relevant to considering the precautionary principle. The first, his decision had already reflected the uncertainty over the climate change effects of non-CO2 emissions and the absence of an agreed metric that could inform policy. Secondly, it was inconsistent with advice which he had received from the Climate Change Committee. Thirdly, they found that the approach was taken in the context of the government's inchoate response to the Paris Agreement. Fourthly, the decision was taken in the context in which the department were developing as part of its response, its aviation strategy, which would seek to address non-CO2 emissions. Fifthly, the designation of the policy was only the first stage in a process by which permission could be given for the relevant scheme to proceed, and the Secretary of State had powers at the stage of development consent for any airport expansion to address those emissions. And sixthly, it is clear from both the appraisal of sustainability and the national policy statement itself that the applicant for a DCO would have to address the environmental rules and policies which were current when its application would be determined. So I think it's fair to say that the court got around addressing directly the precautionary principle on the facts in those ways. So unlike the Court of Appeal, it proved not to be a decisive factor in the way in which the Supreme Court addressed the case. So building upon that, Stephen, I think one of the key points that we can draw from the Supreme Court decision is essentially that there may be a role for the precautionary principle where there's a space for that principle in the context of the decision-making process. So another interesting decision is the first instance decision of Mr Justice Lane, which is the case of Bristol Airport Action Network Coordinating Committee against the Secretary of State for levelling up housing and communities. And this concerned the expansion to Bristol Airport. 
Again, the context or one of the issues in that case related to non-CO2 emissions from aviation. And there was an alleged failure by the panel to have regard to the precautionary principle. Mr. Justice Lane considered the Supreme Court decision. He specifically noted that the precautionary principle is capable of being invoked where the nature of the decision making leaves space for it. However, on the facts of that case, like the Heathrow case, he ultimately decided that the decision was to leave that matter, namely non-CO2 emissions, for further consideration later on in the decision-making process. Therefore, to have recourse to the precautionary principle in such a situation would subvert the decision-making process by requiring consideration here and now of the very issue the decision-making process has rationally concluded should be dealt with later. So when, in your view, Stephen, does the nature of the decision-making process leave space for the precautionary principle? I think that Bristol case must be one of the most awkwardly named cases to pronounce in legal history. But anyway, as Lord Bingham once famously said, context is everything. And I think in cases where it's argued that the precautionary principle applies, that statement very much holds good. You've got to look at the context of the overall decision-making process. The principle may well have multiple applications. It can be argued in different ways. But the facts will have to be right to allow the arguments to be made successfully for its deployment. In other words, it's not a panacea. So when is the space for it? Well, plainly issues in respect of which there is scientific uncertainty, which, of course, there are quite a few, must be considered at some point during the development consent process. And this happens all the time. But the question really is when. And a related argument to that is, when is consideration of it too late to have any material effect on the outcome? That ought to be quite an important point, I think, for a court to consider, at least in my view. But turning to another area where plainly there is a lot of space for the principle to apply, that's in the area of the protection of habitats and species under the Habitats Directive. And a very good example, I think, of the precautionary principle being deployed was the Court of Appeal case last year of Wyatt and Fairham Council, which serves as an important reminder of what the principle does require of a decision maker. So if I can just summarise one or two of the passages from the Court of Appeal's decision. At paragraph 54, the Court of Appeal said that the judge, first instance, hadn't adopted too lax an understanding of the precautionary principle, either generally or as it was to be applied in the case, nor had he wrongly discounted the concept of the reasonable worst case scenario. That's, of course, a quite common way of putting the precautionary principle in certain contexts. And, for example, in the Court of Justice of the EU case in Bayer Prop Science, where the court had said that in cases of doubt, a worst case hypothesis could, but not must, be assessed. So it was one way of doing it, but not the mandatory only way. And nor did the court in that case treat the Commission's guidance on the topic as a matter of having status of law. In the Wadnesey case, well-known case on habitats and the precaution principle, as Mr Justice Jay said, 
in paragraph 32 of his judgment in that case, the Court of Justice had accepted that national authorities don't need to be absolutely certain that there will not be adverse effects on the integrity of the protected site, but must be satisfied there's no reasonable doubt as to the absence of adverse effects. And the judge had asked himself whether reasonable worst-case scenario was an apt synonym for precautionary, but he didn't think it was necessary to come to a decisive view on that point. And the court he agreed with that, nor did they think it was necessary to come to a decisive view on it. And it was, in the Court of Appeal's view, legitimate for Mr Justice Jay to conclude that, at least in that case, the reasonable worst-case scenario didn't have to be assessed if the precautionary principle was to be satisfied. So I think what it's saying is there are many ways of skinning a cat as far as the precautionary principle is concerned, and it doesn't necessarily have to be done by adopting the hypothesis of a worst-case scenario. And the Court of Appeal went on to say that the standard of review is effectively rationality, looking how the precautionary principle has been applied. They said, accordingly, so long as the planning authority makes rational choices as to the steps it's going to take to investigate the impacts of the proposed development, the court won't interfere. And those rational choices must include application of the precautionary principle in the context of habitats, because that's what the law says, and it's implicit in the regulations, and it also must involve a high standard of investigation. But precisely what that means in practice, how you go about it, the mechanics of doing it, in any given case, is left to the judgment of the planning authority and is only subject to review on traditional Wensbury grounds. So the question, I think, really comes down to the substance of how you apply it being a matter for the decision maker, and if that makes sense. Yes, no, it absolutely does. And it then does have a limit to how it can be deployed in the context of judicial review proceedings. I think the other point to flag, obviously going back to the Heathrow case, is an argument that was made there was in respect of Article 6.3 and Article 6.4, whether the standard should be proportionality, so proportionality standard of view rather than a rationality standard of review. And indeed, the court confirmed that it would be rationality, even if a strict precautionary approach is required. So as you say, Stephen, it very much depends upon the individual decision maker. In terms of then the actual scope for the application of that principle, I mean, the court did just reiterate that it might well be appropriate to have a more intensive standard of view where there are serious interferences with fundamental rights. Again, that's a point that we might revisit in due course. Yes. So I think that we can say that whilst the precautionary principle is firmly ensconced in law, it doesn't follow that it's going to be a silver bullet in every case for claimants. Far from it, because just to recap, is there legislative space for it to occupy? That's one question. And secondly, if it is applicable, if there is legislative space, how the planning authority or other decision maker goes about applying it, it's really a matter for them to subject only to rationality. Thank you very much for your time today, Stephen. Next time, we're going to talk about the public trust doctrine. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.